Hey there, Discerning ThoughtBot podcast listener. I just wanted to take a quick moment to ask for your feedback. There's so many cool things that we'd love to do with all the shows and want to know how you feel about our sponsor reads and the possibility of starting a Patreon-style campaign to make them all possible. If you could head over to tbot.io slash survey for a super short questionnaire, your input would be much appreciated. That link again is tbot.io slash survey. And hey, thanks. We got a new camera. I I saw. It's wide. It's wide. The other one wasn't wide, was it? Was it? It should have been. I don't know. It seems, no like, it seems like there's more of... It is widescreen. Mm-hmm. Exciting all times. cameras were. But... <laughs> oh, you're so young. <laughs> <laughs> all cameras that you would have for a computer that is six years old. <laughs> I feel like four by three webcams were more of a uh, ten plus year ago thing. Okay, I guess so. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. I wanted to start with follow-up. Okay. So uh, last time we talked about the security issue and clearance, and I fixed that security issue. I ended up using the fix that I said I wasn't going to use, which is I put the password reset token in the session and then redirect, because that's going to help me with a change I have for clear in mind for clearance 2.0, where I'm using databaseless password reset tokens that I cannot expire like manually. When you record the password reset token in the database, you can just expire it by rotating it, right? But I'm using like token, like the, um, man, I'm, I'm in Phoenix land and Phoenix is called like Phoenix.token and Rails, it's called like message verifier or something like that. Yeah, just for message verifier. Yeah. yeah, so I'm using that. And the only way to a token gets expired is either by expiring through a time limit, which you'll be able to set, or by somebody changing their password. So you're assuming then that because if you're not storing it in the database, that would have to mean that it's stored in the session or verified via the session. It's verified via data that's available elsewhere, right? The data that's available elsewhere would be the key that you use to create the thing, right? So you still have that. And then also what it, whatever it is that you signed or encrypted, which is going to be the user ID and the encrypted password or something like that. I gotcha. But so anyway, the approach of like manually rotating the password reset token wasn't going to work when I moved to that. So I went to the session thing because it, it will work further on down the line. And other people Makes made, sense. other people like George Brockhorst, coworker here, made a argument that like, that there wasn't really a need to be HTTP unpure, <laughs> right? I could still use an idempotent get here. There was no particular reason not to, other than to save a redirect. Right. And while from a, from an application developer point of view, this is no more idempotent from an HTTP point of view. You're not technically modifying any state on the server. You're you're modifying state in the cookie. Right. So right. <laughs> in theory, if they if they resent the request with the old cookie, it would do the same thing. Right. Uh, anyway, so that's not even necessarily the most interesting part. The most interesting part is we discussed like whether or not I would get a CVE for this thing, and I decided like yeah, I want to just because it's going to make notifying people easier, um, be able to put it in bundler audit, and also just like out of curiosity, I want to. So, so I went did through, you? I did. I went well. <laughs> I tried. I went through the process of submitting that form on cve.org, which is uh, MITRE's website, and it um, they got back to me really quickly and basically said, we're not the CNA, which is like the CV numbering authority right. for this. Like, It looks like you're trying to report a problem with open source software. For that, you have to go to 
um, this website, which was like, I want a CVE.org, <laughs> <laughs> which just redirects to a Google form where you have to fill in all the details that you've already filled in on the MITRE site. And the MITRE site so very unhelpfully did not like email me a confirmation with anything that I had already put in or anything like that. So I had to retype everything out. So that kind of sucked. Um, so I submitted that on Sunday, Monday, Sunday or Monday. It's now Wednesday. I haven't heard haven't anything. Heard so yeah. I don't know what's happening there. So I was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. And then Mike Burns, another one of my coworkers, passed along this article that was, uh, the headline was, over 6,000 vulnerabilities went unassigned by MITRE's CVE project in 2015. And right. basically talking about how it's a pain in the ass to get a CVE so people don't. And the problems that that causes, like especially in enterprises and governments and things like that, where it's critically important that they have some sort of automated way to tell if the products they're using have security vulnerabilities. Right. And that automated way is often based on uh, CVE. <laughs> and so if people aren't reporting things to CVE, then that's a problem. And there's no, there's no actual CNA that's responsible for third-party libraries, really. Um, right. So... It's kind of a mess, unfortunately. I really thought it would be a lot easier and that I would get it, I would get this number and maybe they would give me a hard time by being like, this isn't really a vulnerability. But um, unfortunately, yeah. there's not a good thing to do, which I think was it... Somebody was telling me that um, like even for Ruby, it's not like the easiest thing for them to do to get the CVE. No, but it's easier when you have an established relationship with one of the CNAs and a specific contact there. Right. And like you could say... Like Ruby gets distributed with like Linux OSs, right? So you could say that any that Red Hat, who is responsible for the is the CNA for Linux products, could be uh, compelled to cover that. Yeah. But yeah, so that was kind of a a bummer. I guess I'm just gonna have to. I'll I'm kind of waiting because like if I announce this, I would like to announce it with the corresponding CVE. So I'm gonna give them a couple more days. And the other interesting thing about I mean, the, didn't the episode where we talked about it already go out? Yeah. But like, you know, so isn't it it's, basically announced and it's also merged and the the version is released and it's in the release notes. <laughs> but like I haven't publicly said like, hey, hello, like in a, in a written form anywhere that there's this issue. Here, here's another question I have for you. Did you ever successfully find any password reset form on the Internet that isn't subject to this? <laughs> I didn't try. I did. Um, with your help, we looked through device and I did pass them a note that said like, hey, from what I'm seeing here, it looks like you would have this similar issue. And um, Jose from Platform Tech got back to me and said he would forward that stuff to the device team. I haven't really spent a whole lot of time looking at it. It's not something I care about as a user. Sure. Because I'm not going to click on a link <laughs> even before I, <laughs> even without realizing that like I'm leaking the token via refer, uh, I just wouldn't do that. Right. So You go to a password reset page to reset your password. Right, right. I'm pretty focused on what I need to do at that point. <laughs> Right. So, yeah. And the other the other interesting thing about this I want a CVE thing is the the form I had to fill out. It's for issues that are already public. So like you have to make the issue public in order to get the CVE, but then you're not really supposed to like like it would probably be best when you make like a big announcement about the issue to have the CVE number be there. Right. <laughs> so like I've already made this public, the clock is ticking and I don't have a CVE. I don't know. If I don't hear back by Friday, I'll probably just write a blog a quick blog post about it. And just link to that. And yeah. Call it a day. And you should, at that point, probably send an email to the Ruby security yes. mailing list. Yes. And that's what I'm, I was waiting on that as well. So I am a member of that mailing list already because I like getting the announcements. So I get to send out my own. Exciting. Yep. 
yeah so that's where that stands i did it was nice that i that we talked about it last week because it put a little pressure on me to make sure i got the pull requests out and got it merged and got a release i got a version released before the episode went out this morning so that was cool i, did, should, uh, I should talk about things more often before i do them <laughs> did you guys ever issue a cve for the uh argument escaping vulnerability that happened in cocaine like two or three years ago yes there have been cd cves for cocaine which is depending on who you ask, an unfortunately named gem about running command lines in Ruby. Um, it's used by Paperclip uh, primarily, but also some people depend on it for things. And did, did they just go through the same process you're going, or is there a specific contact? that? Because that was what John probably did. Yeah, right? I think, I know, I believe that we've gotten them for, for Paperclip as well in the past. Mm-hmm. And um, Tute, our coworker, also wrote a blog post on the Giant Robots blog, which we can link to here where he's, he indicates that we got it through our contact at Red Hat. And right. I, for this purpose, kind of just wanted to go by whatever it was I was... You know what I mean? Like, I just wanted to say, like, if I didn't know somebody at Red Hat, what should this process look like? Well, and unfortunately, though, for better or for worse, right, the process is sort of set up as if you have an important enough open source project that it needs to be in this database, <laughs> then you know somebody at Red Hat. I just don't understand why... I don't get... The thing that's really frustrating to me is, like, this doesn't seem too complicated. And I no. know probably, I know like if anybody who listens to this is involved as a CNA anywhere, they're probably like, it's way more complicated than you think. And I know there's actually that article that I talked about before is mentioning that they're in the process of like overhauling how this whole thing works. Right. Cause I think this whole process was designed before open source was as ubiquitous as it is right now. Mm-hmm. It just, it used to be like, maybe not when CVE was, was first established, but, uh, Right, it used to be open source meant you had a, uh, a GNU project or nobody cared. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I don't know. So that's where we're at now. I, considering it mostly done, I will send out the announcement on Friday one way or another with a CVE or without a CVE. Yeah. And we'll go from there. Cool. Yeah. Space. Yeah, so did you watch the IAC uh, presentation uh, yesterday? Was it yesterday? Yeah, it was yesterday. So this is like, this is, uh, for people that don't know, this is Elon Musk gave this, uh, who's, you know, of Tesla and SpaceX fame, other things as well, probably. Hyperloop. I'm still waiting on my Hyperloop. Um, (laughs) He gave a presentation about how he intends for SpaceX to bring people to basically make humans an interplanetary species. Well, that that part wasn't news. Like, that's always been the established goal of SpaceX. Okay, so the news was that they actually have a a design and a plan. It was more. It, well, it wasn't even news. Like we all, we all, it, it was announced well in advance that they were going to right. present the specifics of. Uh, at the time, it was called the Mars Colony Transporter, and right. now it's the Interplanetary Transport System. Right. But so the IAC, for those who aren't familiar, is the International Astronautical Con- Congress. You know, it's. It's it's Railscom for space, basically, and yeah. So they gave a he gave a presentation detailing the specifics of not only the engines that are that are being developed, which we knew a little bit more about because they had done their first test firing a few days ago, and Elon was tweeting a lot of the specifications around that. But the engines that are being used, and then the overall design of the actual spacecraft, uh, as well as the launch vehicle, and then the plans for how all of that actually ties together because it, it's a it's a multi-launch system and ideas of how to fund it and what the actual path going forward is and the timeline. He was talking a lot about 
The, the, the goal being to send a million people to Mars, because that's the number that Elon sees as the self-sustaining colony size, which just is, is mind-blowing to me that, like, right, we've we've had barely, ha- we've only had dozens of people walk on the surface of another, right, of another, another uh, celestial body, <laughs> period. And he's talking about sending a group of people larger than the town I'm from to mm-hmm. Mars. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I watched it and it was interesting. I liked, you know, they, he showed this animation or this um, CG thing of like how the transport would work and all that stuff. And it was cool. And the best part was, the, the best part of that was like, he's, he was like, this is actually what we intended. Like, it's going to look like this. This is what we're going to build. It's not Which just is, like an artist rendering kind of thing. Well, um, and it looks like something from the future. Right. It looks cool. But all I kept thinking was like when he was talking, I was like, yeah, yeah, Elon, I saw the Martian too. Like, (laughs) because it was, it was a lot of what was talked about in that book, or I don't know, I don't know if the movie cover went into as much of it, I don't remember, but like, basically, like, you have to refuel in flight a bunch of times, and... We don't have to. No, but he he did talk about how you don't have to, but it makes it a lot, what was it, it makes it a lot lighter, which makes it faster, or something like that, or makes it less expensive, because you don't have to build something and carry enough fuel to do... Well, so it can be either one. Like, as with software, it's all about trade-offs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, because everything in space is measured, uh, in, in orbital mecha- mechanics sort of is quantified in terms of delta V change in velocity. And so, this is another trade-off they made, for example. They are basically not addressing the radiation or, um, what the hell's the term for what happens to your muscles when you don't use them for long periods of time? Atrophy. Yeah, they're not they're not dealing with the radiation problem or the atrophy problem, uh, and the way and the reason they're not dealing with either of those is because they're just going to get to Mars fast enough that they're not an issue, which is fine. You can do that, right? You you can because we talk about launch windows, right? And launch windows are a thing, but you can you can go to Mars outside of a launch window. It just is very expensive in terms of delta v. You have to uh, accelerate your ship in a not so optimal uh, direction uh, by a lot more to get there outside of a launch window and even within a lo- launch windows being like things are aligned properly for you to take advantage of the gravity of like where the position of the earth and the moon and all that is uh n- the moon's not involved but okay, um where 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 the <laughs> earth and mars are um right right uh, yeah well, obviously mars where you're going the the moon also has launch windows but that's only a th- an issue if you're doing what's called a direct injection so nowadays like starting with apollo well and even before apollo but what most spacecraft will do is they'll enter what's called a parking orbit. So they'll uh, launch into a low Earth orbit, orbit the Earth a few times, do whatever checks they need to do, and then depart to their final destination. What the Russians were planning on doing during the Apollo era was uh, what's called, what was called a direct injection. And, and this was also what some of the earlier American probes did. Uh, and there, what you do is, other than staging, you do a single continuous burn from the launch pad until you've done your translunar injection. And it's more efficient, uh, A, just because you don't have to worry about circularizing. Like, the efficiency losses aren't huge when you're talking about uh, going to the moon, so that's not a big deal. But back then, uh, and even today, restarting engines in flight is a non-trivial thing to do and requires, like, special design of the engines. Uh, and so not having to use engines that could be restarted was the, was the big benefit there. So, But then you have to launch, like, at a very specific time where when you take off from the from the launch pad the earth is rotated in such a way that going east from from where you're taking off from will will put you at the moon but yeah so the launch windows are basically like the way orbit works right is that you you are going around something so fast 
that, like, if you're just talking about Earth, right, you're going horizontally past the ground so fast that the curvature of the Earth pulls the Earth away from you faster than the, than the force of gravity. Uh, and so the way that you uh, change your orbit isn't by pointing towards or away from the Earth, but it's by accelerating or decelerating, going sideways. And the same is true in a heliocentric orbit. So when you're doing an interplanetary trajectory, what you'll do is you'll align your orbit with roughly with what's called the ecliptic plane. The ecliptic plane is just the plane that the Earth is orbiting around the sun. And then you'll just burn in the direction that you're going. So that way you are reaching escape velocity of Earth and the energy that you are expending to do that is also increasing the apoapsis or the the apohelion of your orbit the highest point in your orbit around the sun and you do that so that the uh, ap- your apohelion aligns with mars's uh trajectory and you uh, want to time that just so so that when once you're at apohelion mars is there and that's the most efficient way to do it so a launch window is just a, a, a point in time where the earth and mars are aligned as such so that Given the smallest possible change in your trajectory, you'll reach Mars at that at that exact time. But you can completely adjust that, and you can get to Mars a lot faster if you just go faster. Now, because we're talking yeah, about space... Go faster. Yeah. <laughs> now, because we're talking about space, uh, it's not just about going faster, though. If you actually want to stay at Mars, you also then have to slow yourself down by proportional amount. Right. So Unless you want you to land double- in Mars. Uh, yes, you are going well, to slow yourself you have, down. Right? <laughs> Mars' atmosphere is not uh, – well, so if, if the atmosphere was thick enough to actually stop you, you'd have to deal with the additional heating that comes from yes. going in faster. <laughs> um, but Mars' atmosphere is not fast enough to even remotely uh, – I mean, it'll slow you down for sure, but not it, it, not to the extent – like, you, you still have to slow down to get there. You just have a shorter window to do it because you're going to hit the ground. Um Anyway, so yeah, so their 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 solution was build a bigger spaceship so that we can get there faster, and then you don't have to worry about radiation exposure, and then uh, you don't have to like if you watched uh, the Martian, right? They had the the centrifuge on the ship so that the edges of the ship had gravity, and the reason for that is just being in zero in zero g for that long. If we're talking about a year long uh, journey, which is what the cheapest possible trip to Mars, uh, it's roughly it's roughly two hundred and something days in transit, if I'm remembering might be close to 300 uh days in transit and being in zero g for that long does things to muscles yep. that are not good especially the eyes in particular are what they were worried about the astronauts would be blind wow huh. but I like have thought four that. months we have proven that uh that microgravity is fine for four months hmm. yeah and so this is all uh this is according to elon is all going to happen in uh Will they land by 2022 or will they take off by 2022? I guess they would land. They'll probably. launch in 2024 was when oh, they 2024. Okay. So um, probably like 2030. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe. It's just interesting because like I feel like somebody's going to, if it's not this, somebody's going to figure out how to get there. And somebody's, act, well, we've already figured out how to get there. Right. Somebody, I mean, and there's somebody additional, is going to get there. And there's additional plans that both NASA and SpaceX have going to Mars that right. are separate from this. Right. Somebody's going to do it probably if I die a natural death, probably in my lifetime, which is uh, interesting. I don't know. Yes. It's not something I would have thought possible 10 years ago. Well, what, what, what's different here, right, is it's not just talking about sending a person to Mars. Because right. Because we will, we will sure. th- there's a good chance there will be a person on Mars before this launches. Mm, I don't know. I was just looking up, like, I looked up the other project I'm aware of is Mars One. Oh, uh, yeah, that's not even a real... I was going to say, that doesn't even, do they have, like, that doesn't even look like a real thing. 
That was no. like they're trying to send people on a one-way trip to Mars, being like, we're not going to be able to get you home, but we'll send you there. Right. <laughs> no, but like the other the other side of it is uh, SpaceX. Ha- well, so there's SLS, which is, I mean, NASA's timeline is way slower than all of this. Uh, and, but then SpaceX is also planning on sending Red Dragon to Mars in 2018 and potentially uh, could have a, a crewed flight in uh, 2020 or 2022. Right. And meanwhile, like NASA's doesn't even have, uh, what's the next thing they're building? The next spaceship they're SLS? building? SLS. What's SLS that? and Orion. Orion, uh, SLS Orion is, is what vehicle. I was thinking. Yeah. Orion's the capsule. Right, and they're not even talking about a test flight for another couple of years, I think, right? Right, and and Orion itself, what's, what's crazy too is, is with all the costs. So SLS is the launch vehicle for it, Orion's the capsule. Orion itself can only sustain a crew of six for 18 days. So like they're actually designing a thing that's only capable of going to the moon, and then they have to design an additional service module slash transit system that can take it to Mars, which hasn't even started development yet. I'd settle for the moon. I don't know. I feel like we got to walk somewhere again. Like, like uh, right. I just I looked it up, and while you were talking, and twelve people have walked on the surface of the moon. Yeah, that's it. And nobody since Apollo seventeen, whenever that was. Uh, I don't have the date here in front of me. Sixty um, or seventy two, seventy three, I think. Right, and all Americans, also all men. So right. yeah, let's get some more people walking on things, just to like be like, yeah, see, we can do cool things again. Also, like. While he was talking, I was like, I would never do this. I don't want to go establish a colony on Mars. I'm not interested. I would become interested once we get to the point where we've screwed up this planet enough where we've got to get <laughs> <laughs> And that was his point, too. Like, he was like, why do we want to in- be interplanetary? Because, like, he-, he was like, the other option is we sit here until some extinction event happens. Right. Right. And, you know, some extinction event is also going to happen on Mars, but at least we're, we're spreading out our... We're not putting all of our eggs in one basket. <laughs> anyway. I mean, I'm just excited. Like, like, like you said, right? We should be walking somewhere because in the '60s, you know, you actually saw the nation really come together for a single goal. The world, even, right? And everybody who was alive then will tell you that was a huge life-changing event for them. And it's like for our generation, our equivalent is 9/11, which kind of right. It's kind of a downer. We ca- <laughs> we, we kind of got shafted. Yeah, it'd be cool. Like, I, my my son asks me, like, oh, when are they going to go back to the moon? I'm like, oh, maybe never people don't seem interested in it and there's actually not a ton of there's not a ton of useful things on the moon as it turns right. out there's not a ton of useful things on mars either but we'll figure it out i don't know like <laughs> well there's there's the water ice capability of, of of habitability which doesn't exist on the moon yeah the other reason i wouldn't want to go is like like congratulations you've established a human civilization there but like it's, it's like living in a desert <laughs> uh right. i'm from albuquerque man it's not that bad right but you have animals and things like that won't have animals. I guess we Eventually can bring, we can bring domesticated animals. <laughs> All in good time. Sure. A little doggy space suit. Yeah. Well, I mean, presumably there, presumably there will eventually be, like, hubs that require no space suits to go about your, your day-to-day. Right, life. but you're going to have to get there, right? Probably be in right. a space suit then, so you're going to need your right, doggy space suit. Oh, well, not for, not for, well, yes. <laughs> I just want a dog in a space suit, Sean. Okay. <laughs> You do realize, though, that astronauts don't actually ever go into a situation where a spacesuit's completely required. It's for it's for depressurization that would happen earlier in the launch. Right, but he's going to be in a spacesuit. Yes, the dog would be in a spacesuit. Okay, the dog would be in a spacesuit. All right, sure. <laughs> All right. Why not? What else? Um, I did look at the jobs page for SpaceX just because I was like, these they're going to need people to build this. So let's see oh, what's yeah. going on. And there are hundreds of jobs that they are hiring. Uh, you have to want to live in uh, California or Texas. So, you know, I'm out. But uh, 
just the idea of working on like for the reasons we were just talking about like the idea of being like if i were the person who ran the jira installation which is a job they're, <laughs> which is a job they're hiring by the way you can be the person who is the jira administrator but at least you'd be the jira administrator for something that's trying to go to mars i want to be the scrum master of mars <laughs> <laughs> scrum master of mars <laughs> But, so would you would you vote for Elon Musk for inter intergalactic president? No, seems crazy. <laughs> One thing I've always really liked about him is just he's not a trained or polished public speaker. Yeah, you can tell that. Like he just gets on stage. He didn't see. He was just like, um, yeah. It's, it's a nervous, nerdy engineer talking about cool shit, and it's really yeah. authentic, and I and I love that. Yeah, it was cool. And just like his little dead, like moments of kind of deadpan, whether or not he was trying to be humorous or not, but like came off as like kind of deadpan humor. It was cool. Yeah. I found it interesting whether or not this is true, although I personally tend to believe it when he was saying, I personally have no motivation for acquiring assets other than to make the largest contribution I can to making humans an interplanetary species. That was interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's, the only mean, thing hey, you, like, that's really the only thing you can say once you have an insane amount of assets. <laughs> like, well, I'm saying you want to donate all of this project, right, though. Yeah. Nobody's saying that when they're like, geez, if I could just scrap together enough money to for rent this month. <laughs> like, they're not like the only, oh, the other interesting thing that was like the goal of trying to make it so that you could afford to do this. Like if you could afford a couple hundred thousand dollars for a house, you could afford to go to Mars instead. <laughs> Right. And then and like that's a reasonable cost. Like if you're gonna make that kind of decision. Right, but then do you have to buy a house on Mars when you get there? Does SpaceX like provide the housing? What happens? So this is an interesting one too. Like presumably I would assume that yes, there will likely be some sort of agreement on like and you will have what you need to survive when you get there. <laughs> uh, but so here's an interesting thing. Under international law, you can't own property. Like you cannot claim land anywhere other than on Earth. Right. Sure. So, like, that's one of the other things that, that's going to have to get figured out. Like, who owns the house that, you, that, that you're there in? What are and the laws? Like, what are your does, rights? Does your house have a right to be there? <laughs> I guess when you're talking about Mars, the land is, is going to end up being in such abundance and it's all equally useless going, uh, starting out that, like, there won't be a bun uh, uh, too much uh, to bicker over. But that's, that's one that I haven't seen people talking about that probably is going to need to get figured out. Yeah. I don't know. Like I said, I'm just waiting for one person to go to Mars. That's all. I, I, that's all I want. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not holding my breath for a million people living on Mars anytime soon. But it's cool that somebody's working on it. Well, she uh, was talking about sending a thousand ships at a time in a Battlestar Galactica-sized fleet. Like yeah. that's just. He's like, yeah, like in Battlestar Galactica. It's a good show. <laughs> it's like, okay, all right, Elon. <laughs> oh no! And so it like it's. Cr just from a from a like having a moderately decent like I I I'm an armchair uh, astrophysics enthusiast. I guess you've you played, could say. You've played Kerbal Space Program. I played Kerbal Space Program. <laughs> I spent a lot of time studying this stuff. So the whole the whole way the thing's gonna work. So they'll launch the spacecraft up on empty fuel tanks, which is a pretty commonly proposed thing. And then what they're gonna do is have the launch vehicle. Return to the launch pad, but not just like the way that the Falcon 9's been doing return to launch pad. Like literally return to the exact spot that it launched from because the launch clamps are what are responsible for pumping the fuel. Mm -hmm. On that same spot, get loaded with a fuel tanker, immediately take back off with the fuel tanker. 
right to have the fuel tanker refuel it and then the fuel tanker is also reusable and uh depending on the specific launch window that they're targeting the the ship will have to get refueled three to uh, they'll have to launch three to five fuel tankers to fully fuel the the, the spacecraft it's just like that sounds ambitious <laughs> right especially like because that was the plan I mean, this was a long time ago, but that was the plan with the space shuttle, too, is that they would shuttle to low Earth orbit and they would do science experiments and then they would come back and they would land. And then next week they would go again. Right. And it took them a lot longer to turn around a shuttle than they thought it would. And they lost two of them. Uh, (laughs) So it's also like this general system was one of the proposed alternatives to Apollo. It was called Earth Orbit Rendezvous where they would launch the uh, lander and then the command module. I think they were also talking about sending the service module all up as three separate launches and rendezvousing them in orbit, um, which would have been cheaper overall, hmm. but in terms of just the cost of getting that of getting that there. But rendezvous is so difficult to pull off and docking is so difficult to pull off that they opted to reduce the number of rendezvous procedures they would have to pull off just for the for the sake of simplicity and consistency and they're talking about five with the same launch vehicle for every launch <laughs> right and and like the little animation they showed it was like it landed and then the ne- it like went overnight and then it launched again right right and how long so they have reused they have reused their they have not launched a reused oh they haven't launched. but so the other one did launch a reused didn't they what's the jeff bezos one Oh, Blue Origin? Uh, no. Oh, okay. So nobody's launched a reused one yet. No. Uh, uh, never, never mind launching it the next day. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I actually think that the way that they're they're designing things, there's not a ton of refurbishment that needs to get done. You know, it's a, it's a different, it's a significantly different story for reusing a launch vehicle than it is uh, for reusing a shuttle, because the launch vehicle doesn't have to go like. It has re- re-entry, quote-unquote, but the forces that it has to endure are significantly lower than the forces. Because the booster, when it, if it's going on a ballistic trajectory, so we're talking like when they're doing the, the, the GTO mission, so they're not landing at the launch pad, they're landing on the, on the barge. At the point of separation, it's usually going something like 2.5 kilometers per second. And so it'll, it'll have some re-entry forces to contend with that's why they do a burn when they're re-entering it but there's no ablative shielding on it there's nothing that's like and this thing can get really really hot because it has the special material that needs to get reapplied and 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 retested and all of that it just slows itself down enough that the re-entry forces like it char it looks really scary because the outside is black when it gets back but it's not actually enduring crazy forces and so just for contrast so it's going at its fastest about two and a half kilometers per second Orbital velocity around Earth is uh, 6.9 kilometers per second. So you have, uh, and and the uh, aerodynamic forces that you get, uh, that you endure, are the cube of your velocity. Of course. <laughs> so. But so, so like you say. It's, a, it's just, it's a significantly different amount of stress that the, that the launch vehicle will have to endure compared to the shuttle. Right. That's why the shuttle had those ablative. Uh, of the two shuttle disasters we've had, one of them was in a component that was reused. Right. And it was the the rocket boosters. Right. Am I remembering this correctly? So it wasn't a Uh, wasn't the the shuttle used. Wasn't it the little what do they call those things? The little white things on the side. 
Yeah, solid rocket boosters. No, the yeah. entire the entire point of them is that they're cheap and disposable. No, they refurbish those things. They refurbish. No. Yeah, let me see. Let's go to Google. Let's go to Google. Okay, so they definitely recover them because they drop them in the ocean. Uh, what? So they reuse the parts. Over five thousand parts were refurbished for reuse after each flight. So it's not like uh, the impression I get is not like they put the thing back together and put it right up there. They probably just harvest the thing for parts or whatever. Yeah, no, so what happened there was they had, like, like, it's, the, it's like, what the hell are they harvesting from a solid rocket motor? Anyway, so. Anyway. So, yeah, and then that thing blew up, right? It wasn't the shuttle that blew up. It was the booster that blew up. Right. So it wasn't under a lot of stress. It was just ordinary, everyday shit that went wrong. Was there was there any evidence that was the <laughs> fact that it was the reused components of it that failed, though? No, I don't think so, actually. I think it was mostly... I, I recently watched a thing about it where it was really good. I'm going to link to it in the show notes when I find it. It was like a New York Times... Uh, video series thing um, where they talk to a bunch of the engineers and things like that and it just sounds it was actually like it sounds like it was really just a failure of management <laughs> yeah uh, they knew the risk and they also knew that the risk was exacerbated by how long it had sat on the launch pad in cold weather and did it anyway <laughs> well and so. solid rockets are just absurdly dangerous to begin with like I know a lot of a lot of astronauts strongly oppose the use of solid rockets in manned space flight yeah i mean i wouldn't want to sit on top of one <laughs> well because the, the the biggest thing with them is you cannot turn off a solid rocket motor right it's like riding a firework to outer right. space yeah right liquid a liquid motor you can detect problems and you can shut down the engines and it can lead to you know it'll ha you'll have to abort the mission it can lead to very bad things happening but you can turn it off anyway does this conclude the space part of our program? <laughs> if you want it, if you want to. <laughs> Sean could keep going on. Oh, I can keep going. I love space. It's like, it's like my only hobby. There's likely an overlap of people who are interested in hearing us talk about programming who are also interested in hearing people talk about, maybe not us, but people talk about space. So yeah. there you go. Uh, Sorry if you were looking for not space. If you're looking for a programming related. job that may help with space, go to SpaceX.com and uh, look for their programming jobs and you can be their JIRA administrator. They're also hiring developers and things like that. Cast that brought to you by SpaceX. You don't necessarily even have to. Yeah, <laughs> I'm giving them a free ad, but you don't have, you don't have to work on like the thing. You can work on support stuff like they're right. hiring developers that do like C Sharp and SQL and things like that. So well, and I mean they they build all of their software in house. Like the guidance software that lands their rockets on things is right. Stuff to develop right. They have engineers for software. <laughs> yeah. Also, not to belittle, we talked about how we need to walk on things before. There's cool stuff still going on in space. There just aren't. Oh yeah. There aren't people there. Like all these probes and landing on a comet and flying by Pluto, like that's all really cool too. It so. is. It just doesn't have. <laughs> it hasn't managed to make the societal impact that Apollo did. Right. What else is going on? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk about rip grep? Oh yeah, let's talk about rip grep. So what's rip so, grep? So first of all, important important thing to note that uh, the name is not rest in peace grep. It was the the <laughs> author. Knew he wanted the binary to be RG because he was thinking Rust Grep, but uh, like Rust Grep felt too weird for a name. To, so he was looking for words that started with R, and he was like, "Yeah, rips through files, rip grep." Right. That's that's <laughs> what I thought at first too, but then I also came to the conclusion, oh, maybe this is like rip grep, <laughs> like rest in peace. Yeah. Anyway, so it's uh, it's actually not a successor to grep. It's a successor to ag. Uh, and, and the key difference between the two is basically like the defaults. So its goal is to be the sort of like 
RG does what most developers are looking for most of the time, and that's going to mean some a lot more people are going to disagree than with grep. But so ignoring files that are in git ignore, uh, lots of formatting by default. That's uh, at least when it's going to an interactive terminal, that sort of thing. But so it's a successor to AG, but it is written in Rust and designed to have the performance of GNU grep, which no no other file searching tool has really met. Uh, and basically the way they do that, there's a, a number of ways that they do that, but one of the biggest ones is just by having a, a determinate finite automaton-based regex implementation uh, instead of a backtracking implementation. So that means that you lose some of the really complex features that are nice to have in a programming language like Ruby or Perl, such as uh, back references, but are less a thing that you're using terribly often when you are... Um, Searching through a file for a string. yeah when you're searching through a file and the right. when you're tra- maybe when you're transforming a file then you want those back reference type things sure um, you want the full PCRE uh, but but even, even then like because you want capture groups for sure for for replacing file you don't need necessarily back references for matching when you're doing when right. you're doing transformations so the trade off there is that you get guaranteed linear performance on the size of the input for any regular expression whereas back references will have uh, exponential performance in in the worst cases and the really common case that people use to uh, expose the problems is if you do any number of a's followed by any number of c's and you pass a string that contains 30 a's followed by a c basically anything that does backtracking will crash on that input wow yeah, so it's written in Rust, which is why which is why I was particularly excited with it. But I've been trying it out, and it's like, hey, it's cool, and it, it does certain things that I need frequently. Like, so one <laughs> one problem that I've encountered that is uh, become a problem I think is unique to places like Shopify. But just when I'm searching for things, oftentimes I'll end up finding crap in JavaScript or like files that aren't in gitignore and I don't want to necessarily always ignore, but just aren't what I'm, I'm like. I'm looking for uh, an identifier in Ruby right now. Mm-hmm. Right, the way I used to do that would be uh, ag whatever star star slash star dot rb. Right. What that does is that in your terminal expands the names of all Ruby files in in, a, in your current directory and then passes them individually to ag. Ag has an upper limit on the number of files it will accept. The number of Ruby files in Shopify's code base is greater than that number. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the proper way to do it is ag has an option that you can pass it which is the pattern to use to search for the files in which it performs the search it doesn't have like a way to set the type no ripgrip just has hyphen t short for right. file type rb yep. bam for some so. reason i thought ag had that but maybe not i, I guess, thought it did too <laughs> Um, it has lots of it has lots of little things like that that I really enjoyed, and then it is noticeably faster. And one of the other things that I've and like no, when I say noticeably faster, I mean like I'm doing things where I am specifically noticing the difference. Right. Uh, and one of the other things I, I really liked about it, so I had been trying out Joshua Clayton's unused tool a while back. Yep. Which uh, uses C tags and AG to find potential unused code in your code base. And it takes a really, really long time to run against Shopify's code base. And as best I can tell, the majority of that time is lost just subshelling out. Right. Uh, so, like, if ag had a libag that you could call into just through a CFFI from Haskell, uh, that performance would get exponentially better. Ag does not do that. Uh, Ripgrip does. Right. As much of its functionality as possible is packaged into a separate library that has a programmatic interface. 
patches welcome <laughs> on unused. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I was just like, hey, that's a cool thing that I had specifically been looking for. And right. We, we talked about that, that, I think, project. when we talked about unused. We said, like, oh, the, the time is taken up by the subshelling and ag has no library. So and then here we are a few weeks later and there's an alternative. It has a library. The creator of the silver searcher, ag, called that because that is the chemical symbol for silver. Is RG the chemical symbol for anything? <laughs> I have no idea. Why did he want RG? Rust grep. Oh, right, right. You talked about that. So he commented on that, right, where he thought, like, he basically said, like, it's an interesting approach and talked about how, like, he doesn't feel like he could make the change to not have full PCRE support. Well, he said he said that I think people get annoyed, but PCRE is such a nightmare that I might do it anyway. <laughs> Uh, it was actually really cool. One of the things that happened on the Hacker News thread was they collaborated and they decided on a common file that they're both going to look for now. So .agignore is now deprecated and they will both look for a file that is just .ignore. Ooh, interesting. And that one was a very that. controversial decision as yeah, well. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. .ignore. So their idea was that there is enough of a thing that's like, here are some files that just whatever you're doing in general, if you would need a list of files to ignore, you should ignore these. And they're not saying that no program should ever need a program-specific ignore file. But they can but inherit from ignore. They can inherit from ignore, and a searching application is sort of the most fundamental, like, if you're going to be ignoring files, this is sort of the, the baseline of things that you want to ignore and other programs that want to ignore from it. Like, it would make sense for .gitignore... Not that this is going to happen in Git, but like it would make a lot of sense for .gitignore to be in addition to something that's in .ignore. Because right. if you don't want to search it, you probably don't want it in, in your in your uh, Git repository. But at the same time, there there are potentially things that you want that you want in your Git repository, but you don't want to search, or that you don't want in your Git repository, but you do want to search rather. Right. I have I do frequently have the other where you have it in your Git repository, but do not want to search it. Sure, and that's like vendor JS or something like that. But at the same time, like if right now they just look at git ignore, and so you know the option. The, well, the answer there, there is just AG turn ignore. off your right. But for that reason, I use ag ignore. Doesn't ag ignore look at git ignore still in addition? Yes. So I layer the two. Right. Right. So you just have to tell it don't look at git ignore. Right. And this again, this isn't like right. That's the whole point, though. Right. Is they have these defaults, which aren't going to be what everybody wants all of the time. It's just what most people want most of the time. And so, of course, you still need to have options to turn things off when you need them. Right. Makes sense. Um, I don't, I don't know how if like I would have been fine with dot search ignore. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time I don't disagree with the reasons that they gave for going with dot ignore. Right. Yeah. Uh, now that you explain that it kind of makes sense and it potentially eliminates the proliferation of like oh dot this ignore dot that ignore dot foo ignore dot bar ignore. Um yeah. and having so having to keep those in sync cuz somebody on your team uses this tool versus this other tool. It's Similar to the decision for, you know, dot Ruby version, only if they had called it dot version or something like that. And you'd be like, oh, I don't know. Uh, like dot Ruby well, version was back in the day when they had like RBM had, I think it was always, I don't know. What did RBM call it? Did RBM uh, even support RBM it? version? Oh, right. RBM version. And then RVM had RVMRC. Right. Um, and they, it was like, this is insanity because not all developers on the same team use the same Ruby version manager. Can we just have one file that specifies the version? And they were like, yes. And then also the gem file added support for specifying the version. <laughs> so now you, you're back to specifying it in multiple places anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, what were you going to say? I felt like you were going to say something there. Oh, no, just I don't think that like dot Ruby version dot versus dot version is the same. <laughs> no, it's not. It's just the first thing that came to mind. Sure. Yeah, I, I haven't found like I'll try it out, but I haven't found that I'm waiting on searches ever. Um, maybe that's because the code bases I'm working on are small enough that it, like it's fine. Yeah. So I still use control P in Vim, which is like a fuzzy finder type thing. And back before I used the silver searcher on larger projects, that was slow enough that you had to set control P to cache the results and then search the cached results. And then every once in a while you'd be like, oh, it's the caches. You have to like expire the cache somehow. I forget how you do that. But with the silver searcher, it was fast enough that I never even had to bother caching the results. Yeah. The list of files. So. And it was like for the Rails code base, it was just barely on the edge of like okay i don't feel like i need caching but i was noticeably waiting on it every time and then with the with shopify's code base i had to turn caching back on because it's like four seconds with ag so now you do you use rip do you still do you use control p i do use control P. do you now you use rip with that Mm -hmm. and it's you and that's noticeably faster for you yes awesome i'll probably check it out i mean there's no reason I certainly, when I'm searching, do not use the features that RipGrep does not support. Right. And I enjoy things that are the fastest when there's no downside to having the fastest. So uh, I'll probably check it out. Give and, it you know, guaranteed never to seg fault. <laughs> right. Challenge accepted. <laughs> One of the things I really enjoyed, though, so the author is Burnt Sushi, who is a fairly prominent member of uh, the Rust open source community, and just... His overall composure on the Hacker News thread and our Rust thread was not nearly as like hostile as the Hacker News thread was, but there were a lot of very angry people on the Hacker News thread. About what? What are they angry about? <laughs> that he thinks he made a thing better than Grep and Grep is just, or so it was a combination of like, why do you think you need to make a thing better than Grep? Why not just contribute to Grep? Why do you think you're better than Grep? And then there were a lot. Another uh, common angry thing was uh, being angry about his choice of uh, ignoring files and get ignored by default. Yeah. Uh, but he just had a composure that, like, if everybody who in open source could maintain that level of composure, the world would be a much, much better place. Like, I, I don't know. Just uh, the just reading his responses was delightful, and seeing like. On that thread, you know, the author of a competing project and him collaborating and successfully being like, we are making different things and we disagree about uh, we disagree about a lot of things and we're never going to agree on those things. But, hey, right. This could benefit both our projects. Let's do it. And having that just happen on Hacker News of all places. I don't know. It's just a really pleasant. It was a lovely thing to see. And just seeing like so like the article that got linked to on Hacker News, like the rip grip thing is like a. A comparison of grep and ag and rip grep and, and like five other tools and you could see like if you were the author of one of the tools that gets beaten out by rip grep you would think like you might be a little testy because it's the internet and it's people and we get our feelings hurt it's it's an art like he but it's made not, it but it's like he does like the author of ag who comments on the thread is not like hurt you know right. he's just like oh yeah that that's a great article he says like it's a really great comparison and like talks about some of those like the trade-offs that they make and like then like you said they go on to like agree about something that they should collaborate on and and it's just like a really cool like everybody calm down for a second like there can be multiple solutions to a problem yeah 
so long as you're not in the JavaScript world where you're reinventing everything every <laughs> three, <laughs> every three weeks, you know, there's a balance to be struck there. Versus like, again, going back to Ruby version managers, right? You had RVM for a long time was basically it. And then RBM came out. And I would say the way RBM positioned itself against RVM was perhaps fair, but also antagonistic when it, like in the read sure. it would be like it doesn't do all of these annoying stupid things that rvm are, that rvm does right and then watching the way that that developed versus just being a little more like let's talk about the things we do really well and then acknowledge the trade-offs we make and let people make up their own mind and the things that rip grep doesn't do right in that article they don't frame it as it doesn't do these annoying things it's hey here's why you might not want to use rip grep right and it says like, and this is often more illuminating, right? right. Like, and I was like, oh man, that's a really, I was thinking about clearance and I was like, here, are, I should write, like, here are reasons you wouldn't want to use clearance. I'm kind of thinking like, of doing the same on diesel as well. <laughs> right. And I was like, like, oh, here's an honest, like, uh, I'm not going to be able to help you that much if this is what you're trying to do. Yeah. Well, and the, and the benchmarks, like he tried as best he could to make them fair and actually illustrate the differences between He did them. use the Rust Nightly compiler. Yes. Uh, so it does perform better if you compile it with the Rust Nightly compiler. Now, right. uh, an important thing is that since this is a program and not a library, like you don't have to care. Right. As long as pre-compiled right. binaries. As long as it's pre-compiled for your platform, it doesn't matter. Right. It does run on stable Rust and it run it performs well on stable Rust. It won't win in every benchmark that they showed. But it, it will win. And the reason they use Nightly Rust is because he uses some of the uh, SIMD intrinsics that aren't available on Stable Rust. Right. But yeah, it was like, I don't know, it was just it was a well-done article and a program that like does a, a thing that people need well and with slightly better defaults slash options and faster. And it was just like, hey, that was a very enjoyable thing to discover exists and read about and read the discussion on. And that are, those are not normally things I can say about <laughs> interactions on the Internet. Yes. So I think the summation of our podcast today is uh, watch out for a CVE or announcement of clearance thing. Go watch the Mars thing and start thinking about going to Mars and working on things that send people to Mars. And uh, try out rip grep on your Mars code base. <laughs> yeah uh, that's that's uh that's a good summation of our very scattered collection of topics it was a good one though these people should enjoy it um, i think so spaceships and rust what else do you need right one more thing we're doing a podcast survey for folks who listen to all the thoughtbot podcasts if you get enjoyment out of our podcast we'd greatly appreciate you heading over to tbot.io slash survey uh, there'll be a link in the show notes for that as well to answer a couple questions for us Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 82. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>